I added one more podcast to the giant podcast bin. Now you have plucked that podcast out and started listening. I took my microphone and found some human folk. Then I recorded all the noises while we spoke. My name is Adam Buxton. I'm a man. I want you to enjoy this. That's the plan. Rosie, come on. Should we go for a walk? Come on. Oh, it's a fly past. Beautiful. Let's have a little bit of music for our walk. Love it. I love a bit of Florence Easton singing Robert Burns on a uh, summery morning walk. How are you doing, podcasts? Adam Buxton here. Hey, thanks so much for joining me for podcast episode 101. This one features a rambly conversation with Sarah Pascoe and Richard Iowadi, two comedians who are both avid readers and have both written books which is why I thought they might be well-suited to talk with me about The Catcher in the Rye by J.D. Salinger. So this is a slightly unusual episode in that we just focus on that one theme for the whole conversation. It's kind of a book club, I suppose, is what it is. It's by no means a definitive critical analysis of The Catcher in the Rye. It's just three friends bollocking on about it. I chose Catcher in the Rye because I discovered last year when I was talking to Richard that it was his favourite book when he was a young teen. And that made me go back and reread it for the first time since school. And I thought it would be fun to talk to Richard and Sarah about the book's themes of grief and lost innocence and the pain of transitioning into the adult world and all its phoniness as well as talking a bit about Catcher in the Rye's legendarily reclusive author, Jerome David Salinger, who died in 2010, aged 91. Now, I certainly wouldn't recommend listening to this if you haven't read Catcher in the Rye, but if you have read it, but not for a while, here's a brief synopsis. Catcher in the Rye, published in 1951, begins with 17-year-old Holden Caulfield recuperating following a breakdown. The rest of the book is an account from Holden's point of view of the events that led to that breakdown, which took place the previous winter in the days following his expulsion from Pensy Prep, a private school. Holden's roommate at Pensy is a meathead called Stradlater, 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 who informs Holden of his sexy plans for Jean Gallagher, a childhood friend of Holden's who he feels particularly protective of. A fight ensues, after which Holden spends two days killing time in New York before he has to face his parents and inform them of his expulsion from Pensy. We learn that things have been difficult for Holden since the death of his younger brother, Ali, when Holden was just 13. Ali had a baseball glove on which he had written poems to read during boring baseball games. Now Holden entertains hopes of moving in with his older brother, D.B., a World War II vet who's become a successful screenwriter in Hollywood. 
He probably wrote Long Shot, starring Charlize Theron and Seth Rogen. During his visit to New York, a lonely Holden visits a jazz club, I'm going for jazz club, and spends much of his remaining cash buying drinks for three older women with whom he flirts half-heartedly. After which he arranges an abortive liaison with Sonny, a teenage prostitute, and falls foul of her thuggish pimp Maurice in a depressing hotel room. Later, Holden arranges a meeting with an old girlfriend, Sally Hayes, and is briefly looked after by a well-meaning teacher, Mr Antolini. But Mr Antolini's affections at one point are interpreted as predatory by Holden, who ends up distraught and emotional, creeping into his parents' house to see the only person in the world that he feels he can really talk to, his little sister Phoebe. So there you go, that's a sort of overview. I've missed out lots of bits, obviously, but I'm assuming that you've read it, and hopefully recently. Obviously, there's an awful lot to be said about the book and its author, and I've put a few links to a couple of documentaries and articles that I found particularly interesting in the description of this podcast. But right now, let's get into some Catcher in the Rye chat with Sarah Pascoe and Richard Iowadi. Here we go. Thank you very much for coming along to In Our Time with me, Melvin Bragg. Yeah. yeah. That's what Richard was worried this was going to yeah, be like. Yeah, I know. I saw on the email. Or hopefully that it would be. Yeah. <laughs> Secretly hopeful. Richard yeah. was thinking this was going to be some sort of thorough mm. dissection of Catcher in the Rye, yes. put in historical context. Historical yeah. context would be interesting. Have you reread it in preparation for the book club? Yes. Yes. So did I. Yes. So already like we've done quite a lot of work. There's been many readings before. <laughs> it's always good to say that you've reread something. Well, sometimes if it's a long time ago, you forget, you know, yeah. especially with classics, you just say, yeah, 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 read that Hamlet all over When it. did you read it first? Well, I think I read it as a teenager, but yeah. then I think I did, but I misremembered the ending, which now makes me doubt it. Okay. What did you remember the ending as being? I thought he died. Oh, you thought he killed himself? Yeah. Interesting. I thought it was a suicide book. Oh. Hmm. Were you made to read it at school originally, or did you just read it No, it, it wasn't on the syllabus. I think someone else referenced it in a way that um, kind of teenagers who are very rebellious loved this book. And I thought, I'm a teenager who's very rebellious. <laughs> I'll love this book. And then I think, how I remember it is that I read it, didn't particularly enjoy it, and thought, oh, it must be for boys then. Must be a boys, <laughs> must be a boys book, which I did mm-hmm. not feel this time. Oh, okay. Yeah. I'm That's really gl- interesting. I'm really glad I reread it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. We're going to come back to that, Sarah. And when did you first read it, Richard? Probably teens, early teens. A teacher gave it to me to read. Oh, okay. Um, Because he thought you were an intelligent young man and he wanted to cultivate your potential. I don't know. He had very long feet. (laughs) He had his shoes specially made. (laughs) They were were narrow and long. He wasn't tall. I'd say 5'4", but size 9 feet. And I remember this. And was so it the, the penguin? <laughs> yeah. 
He was Danny DeVito. He was I Danny DeVito. Danny DeVito. It was a bit like, yes, you might enjoy this. Mm-hmm. But you obviously liked the teacher sufficiently to take to him take, up on it. Yes. I, it was the first book I remember really liking, mm. I think. And you liked um, it immediately or did it sort of grow yes, on Yes, I liked it a lot immediately and then bought it and I think I read it a fair bit. What was it about it that sucked you in? Well, it was funny and I hadn't really read any book with language like that that was so personal. So um, I guess just in an argo. Also, I think at that age, America was just the most exciting prospect. Nirvana, Bill Hicks. Tarantino it just seemed very exciting American and that sort of romance of New York it is very grown up but he does kind of leave school and have like a little bit of money and go to a bar and even though there's all these restrictions to it he's kind of like in taxi cabs and going around the town even though he's a child Mm. yeah and his parents don't know where he is yeah so the book was published in 51 and so this is uh, the New York of the late 40s, early Mm. 50s. And yeah, there is just an atmosphere of adults talking to younger people like their peers almost. One of the many tragedies of the book is him misreading the teacher's affection when he stays around his house. I found that so sad. Mm. And you can just feel there's all this kind of sadness because men have been boys and they reflect back on this kind of period of frustration on not knowing, on not being able to deal with the amount of emotion that you can have in a body. And so that teacher kind of just stroking his head in the night and him assuming, well, okay, I need to leave, there's something weird going on. It just felt like a drunk man with affection. Right. Mr. Antolini. When yes. you read it originally, because I was made to read it at school. So you were made was, to, so it was syllabus. Yeah, it was a and syllabus you had to kind book. of write things about it or talk about yep. it. Write an essay in the okay. style of Holden Caulfield. That's so ironic because he writes essays for other people in the book. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, in their style. When he's at uh, boarding school. Mm. So I could sort of ape the style, but I didn't get beneath the surface at all. I didn't know what it was about. I didn't get it. It's such a clever thing that it does because it never, ever tells you what's going on. You have to know enough to understand two people's point of view and why they misunderstand each other at every instance because the narrator doesn't tell you. Yeah, no. Or almost immediately says, I'm not going to tell you a load of things, and then (laughs) reveals them. You know, like it starts with him saying, you know, my parents would have, is it two heart attacks apiece or something, if I told you anything too personal. And the things he says are so personal um, throughout, and amazingly so. It combines sadness and, and funniness to such an extreme and an innocence. And each chapter's like a short story. Mm. It feels that everything has like a, a tremendous cliffhanger. Nothing seems to hugely happen. It's just a, it's a kind of lost weekend in a way. Yeah. I found a lot of moments really painful. Which the women, ones? The women in the bar who are yes. kind of using him for drinks. Yeah. I just, I found it uh, uh, excruciating. I was so angry with everyone. Right. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that bit made an impression on me when I was reading it first time around. Mm. I found the whole thing so depressing as a teenager. Yeah. So his rant about actors is my favourite thing. <laughs> I mean, obviously, the repetition of phony about anything, but the ultimate phoniness is people who are phony for a living. It's just, it's absolutely glorious. And then being there with someone else who clearly likes another guy and her and this man are loving the play and loving it. He's just standing there chain-smoking, hating everything. That's the thing that got through to me as it, when right. I first read it. It was like, yeah. oh, yeah, I get the concept of yeah, phonies. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I think I do. What were the phonies to you, though, Richard, when you read it? 
Well, it was hard to know. I just really liked him. I just really liked being in the company of this voice. And probably now I am aware more reading it how young he is and damaged. And But he still felt damaged and not right about things, but he just seemed very happy to give everything the absolute evisceration. And that just seemed funny. I mean, the phoniness of it, I guess it's the same things like assemblies and long assemblies about the dangers of acorns and, <laughs> you know, being lost property and people having to go up to collect pants with skids in and that being kind of shown <laughs> in front of everyone and and saying how important this school was and these are all things that happened to you yeah the, I, I was that child no but i or just things like the christmas i remember the christmas um description in the book about them throwing snowballs and i went to a catholic school and that they'd have a you know, Christmas mass and the feeling of that and people singing Come All Ye Faithful and trying to get away with singing the last mm. Oh Come Let Us Adore Him as loudly and as aggressively <laughs> as possible because you couldn't get in trouble because it's that's worship. what you're meant to do. But you want everyone, God to hear you. everyone knows this isn't right, but yeah. they can't. <laughs> How do they tell you off for it? Those sort of things, which I feel it's really good on and just... I don't know, just the hovering of boys and just everyone's preening and things that happen. So I don't know, phoniness was just probably at that age, it's everyone who isn't you, really. It's so connected to pretension and status because phonies are never inferior. It's someone who yeah. behaves like they're better than you. An actor, that's what the whole thing, like the ultimate, just because they're on stage, they think they're better than you. Yeah. And that's sometimes with the phoniness, there was an assumption on his behalf that, that they think they're better than me because yes. I'm in the audience watching them. Yeah. And but also it feels like it's a preemptive strike on rejection. So people are phony because there's a superficial attraction to that world. He still go to the movies. He loves pretending to be an actor and all the stuff of him pretending that he's bleeding and just yes. got shot and yeah. his tap dancing. So it's a kind of, you're attracted by that world, feel that it may not quite accept you. Mm. So you, you dump them before they dump you by just going, I just don't even want to be involved with this. It's just so gross. But you're kind of fascinated yes. by it as well. Yeah, which is the thing with the visiting the sex worker. That's a pivotal scene. Huge. And all of this curiosity to the point of desperation about this adult world of sex yeah. and then the reality of it, especially the reality of buying it. Mm. So a situation without any intimacy and then having to try and back out of that, and then the awful thing of just then you're a boy. This now suddenly you're a little boy, and they're going to steal from you, and there's nothing you can do. And like that again, in terms of like cringing moments, I was so angry on his behalf. It's just so infuriated because you can mm. you can feel that anger. You just explode. The world is so unfair already, and now this is happening. Had you started to have those kind of moments of transitioning into the adult world and leaving behind innocence and that and that weird sleazy hotel on your own feeling that he so brilliantly mm. encapsulates in that scene had you had those sort of experiences when you read the book I don't think I had that kind of segue into adulthood interestingly for myself he's was is a very rich person so when I was 16, 17, 18, all of my desperation for freedom involved just wanting some money. Mm -hmm. Like, And I, I did work, but I didn't ever have enough money to be able to make any choices. 
And then I started properly working when I was 18. And then you do have a small amount of money. So I think I went straight from absolutely no freedom to now I have absolute freedom. So definitely read it the first side and didn't understand any of that. He seemed like a very rich boy. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Privileged. Mm. And were you playing at being grown up at a certain point, Richard? And no. Smoking cigars and dressing in suits and going and hanging out in jazz clubs. I was dressing clubs. in suits, sure. <laughs> and I, I wasn't an animal. Yeah. But no, I was in no way in an adult world. Um, yeah, I zero freedom. I guess maybe I was 13 when I read it or 14. Yeah. So oh, really? Very young. Yeah, I wasn't involved in anything. I mean, what did I you just... make at that age of the of that scene with the prostitute then? Do you remember? <laughs> just thought, what the hell's this? I, it just felt like he's out of his depth all the way through. Yeah, yeah. Because the language is so brilliantly um, simple, but, you know, also sophisticated. And just the repetition as well which is so cleverly done of just saying the same things again, of just not worrying about using the word phony three times in the same paragraph mm. as which you feel would be more writerly to not, you know, stack things with the same adjectives that it felt, oh, I can follow him doing anything because he's using a level of language that I can comprehend. But the actual emotion of what that would feel like, I couldn't go, oh, well, if I were in a situation with it. Mm-hmm. I don't think, but... Yeah, it's incredibly readable, isn't it? It's so yes. easy to read. Yeah. And it's just beautifully smooth and none of it jars yeah. and yeah. none of it is Well, that's what's so amazing about J.D. Salinger is actually that he isn't an author who's published lots and lots of books. No. It, and I think that's why people get so obsessed with this book and him, is that he was a hermit who didn't answer any questions or explain himself anything more than the text and then just stopped writing. Hmm. Or did he? Or well, that's he? the thing, that's yeah. Right. The vault. There's supposed to be a vault with yes. unpublished yeah. manuscripts all labelled and waiting for publication. Although yes. I also read that after one of his former lovers, Joyce Maynard, mm. published a kind of tell-all memoir. And then also one of his daughters, Margaret, mm. in 2000, published a book as well that was oh, really? quite yeah. an evisceration. Dreamcatcher. Um that both of those encouraged him supposedly to just burn everything. Oh, that really? Because that's the thing is it would be odd to want to be published but not while you were alive. Yeah. Because it's kind of one or the other, isn't it? You kind of think this is never for anyone or I don't want yeah. to be here. Although yeah. supposedly he left instructions of certain stories that can, can be published this mm. far after his death, but they may be ones that were previously available. Yeah. Because the collection of nine stories doesn't collect a lot of his yes. early stories, which he didn't seem to think were up to much yeah. or up to his standards. Yeah. And then Hatworth, is it 24, that one, Hatworth 16, okay. 1924, yeah. that came out in the New Yorker in 1965, you can't get. And maybe that can come out later, all those stipulations oh, in see. his sort of will and things. And do they not just exist online? They're really hard to find online. Really? I think it's pretty well policed, the Salinger mm. estate. estate. Mm. And who does run the estate? Do you know? His son, his son. and his last wife. Okay. It's always a good phrase. My yes. last wife. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> My most recent wife. One of the theories was that he was writing under a different name. Oh, Pynchon. Thomas Pynchon, yeah, yes. That Salinger was Pynchon. Yes. Really? Yeah. yeah. I hadn't heard I, that that's, before. That's, that was the first that's... time I really read anything biographical about Salinger was that someone had gone to interview Pynchon and, they, and he ran out of the window of the house. Right. 
and um, and they said, oh, it's J.D. Salinger. Well, the, oh, the, the styles are not similar, but are no. they just similar kind of uh, yes. literary figures? And I mean, Salinger's a sort of publicity kind of monger compared to Pynchon. It's a maybe yeah. one picture of Pynchon or two, no interviews. Yeah. Yeah. It's fun going down the Catcher in the Rye Salinger rabbit hole because there's so much there mm. to think about and read about because he was such a mysterious figure and he yes. now is... You know, with modern sensibilities, he is a controversial figure. He was involved almost exclusively in with young women. He got mm. into relationships when these women were in their teens. Mm. Pretty much all the women that he had long-term relationships with, he met when they were very young. Mm. What is it? I came across this article online that is illustrative of the attitude some people have about him. Yeah. Yeah, it's very difficult, that thing, culturally. It's called hebophilia, and it's an attraction to women who are um, adolescent but at a very early stage. Uh-huh. Right. And actually, it's very common in men with high status. Like, it happens a lot with music, and that's the thing, is that there's been such a cultural shift in understanding power and economic dynamics and what yeah. a relationship ideally should be between equals, and a 13- or a 14-year-old can't be the equal of an older man who's especially yeah. a rock star or... Um, an established writer but it is really common it's a very very common thing yeah and especially it's very difficult to look back on the past and then go well this is my diagnosis that person was doing this or was abusing a power relationship right here's this article just an example of the kind of thing jd salinger was a shockingly creepy womanizer who took home underage girls into his 60s and then series of um, into his 60s yeah. He had a 60s room. <laughs> but that's <laughs> the thing. That people, people who, um, this is why it's very connected to people who are artists and powerful, is that quite often people don't stop who they're attracted to. Mm. And, and of course, that makes perfect evolutionary sense. Men can continue to have children and to be attracted to very fertile women. There's a, a biological argument that makes complete sense. And lots and lots of artists throughout history, the people that we know about, it's exactly that story. Uh-huh. It is exactly that story. Well, Chaplin, who married Una O'Neill, who was one of Salinger's first girlfriends, mm. was 53 when they married. She was 18. Mm-hmm. I think they married on her 18th birthday. Yeah. And they had eight children. And, you know, that's meant to be one of the kind of armchair psychological analyses of Salinger, that he was continually trying to recreate this perfect prelapsarian mm. relationship that he had with Una O'Neill before he went to the war and could never get over it and then oh, losing really? her to this yes. to essentially the most famous man yeah. in the world yeah. um, is enough to give you quite a distaste for movie phoniness and the power of that <laughs> and oh, gosh, you know yeah. your first love yeah um, right and then coming back from World War Two, after spending almost like D-Day he was out there until um, Armistice Day and liberating death camps at the end of it having seen horrible things terrible fighting and presumably traumatized by that and then coming out of it found out while he was in france fighting that una had gone off with uh, charlie chaplin had married charlie chaplin so for all sorts of reasons he finishes the second world war absolutely heartbroken and very cynical about humanity he was hospitalized for a breakdown. Right, okay. And also this very strange thing where he marries a German former member of the Nazi party, mm. which is a, 
you know he himself is jewish half jewish half jewish well his mother wasn't his mother was i think irish catholic okay. his father was jewish yeah you could go to jail for marrying a former nazi yeah. collaborator of that and she came to america and then it was annulled very soon it's still frowned upon to marry a nazi in some places <laughs> please how do we have a royal family please stop it is this on please i'm here a week um I think it's. I think we're cool with Nazis now, aren't we? <laughs> We've got over that. Live. Everyone's entitled to their ideological <laughs> to structure. Their flags and hats. Nazi's just a label. <laughs> For me, it's a lifestyle. You want to call it Nazi? How I live? That's cool. I don't call it. I just call it rigorous. It's, it's a thorough way of life for me. <laughs> but. Uh, yeah, so there's all sorts of things which are just begging to be analysed. Yes. And the most obvious theory seems to be that Salinger is just trying to, he's determined to preserve in everyone he sees mm. some sort of concept of innocence. So the, the reason I wanted to, to have this conversation with you guys was that I read the book again recently, mm. having not read it since I was 15 or something. Having kind of written it off, I was like, oh, it's... It's not that great. Yeah. People go on about this yeah. book, but it's a sort of a cliche of a great book. It's really yeah. not all that. I don't think my dad liked it. I remember at the time when I was reading it, I was saying, oh, we're reading Catcher in the Rye. And he's like, oh, what do you think of that? I said, no, I don't really get it. And he's like, no, it's rubbish. So he didn't, he wasn't into it. And mm. I thought, okay, that's fine. If dad doesn't like it, I'll just ignore it. And, you know, he didn't get the fact, obviously, that I, I just didn't understand it, mm. really. And then a few months ago, I read it aged nearly 50, father of three, with teenage sons. Uh, my, my eldest son is the same age as sort of the Holden character. I can see him beginning to struggle with a lot of the same sort of things. And obviously it's a totally different book. Yeah. Suddenly I, I'm understanding it on all sorts of levels and new levels that have come with, mm. with being older. And also I'm remembering with shame cringing at lots of the scenes because i can see that i was sort of trying to do a lot of the same things that holden was that having this slightly self-pitying attitude towards relationships and romance and mm. sort of thinking oh i'm nice um it's a sort of thing of being sure that you know what's best for someone else yeah and the best way to keep them innocent and to okay. preserve what's nice about them and yes. to rail against anyone. Well, like, it's, well, it's trying to control people a little yeah, bit, it's isn't a, it? Yeah, it's a yeah. form of control, I suppose, yeah. Um, this isn't related to you, sure. but more related to an extreme version of Holden Caulfield. And it's really interesting, obviously, the murderers that have really loved <laughs> Catcher in the Rhine. It's really spoken yeah. to them. Yeah, Chapman, who killed yeah. John Lennon, and then the Reagan... That was, was Hinckley. Yeah, yeah. And then one other... There was one, and he was quite... obsessed with a, a young actress who yes. rejected him, and he sent her lots and lots of letters that they found afterwards, and then he followed her onto a, a set yeah. in L.A. And again, and he, he found out that Mark Chapman had the book, and that's why he took it. Oh, yes, Robert John Bardo 
was carrying a copy of the book the night he murdered the actress Rebecca Schaffer. Sorry, I should have remembered her name. Yeah, Rebecca Schaffer. Um, Schaffer. I'm trying to think what's one of their names. Elliot is one of them. Elliot Rogers. So do you remember this killing? Um, well, it's mass murder. So maybe two years ago. And he recorded long YouTube videos. And basically he was saying, I'm such a nice guy. I am so handsome. I am so great. I've got this car. And yet women continue to give their sex to other men. He felt so entitled, but there's this very subtle thing that's in The Catcher in the Rye that obviously hardens in certain men. And actually you see it a lot in the worst parts of the internet where the the men who are very angry with certain women and again it's that assumed rejection or they've had other rejections and it's like, I am one of the... Why do they continue to go out with these horrible men? Why do girls like bad guys? And actually they don't really. It's one of those myths that guys who aren't very nice tell themselves they are not getting things because they're too great yeah which is a wonderful narrative but like that's what they've told themselves but when you're Mm. a teenage boy Mm. and you're seeing the most beautiful girl what you say why are you looking at me when you say (laughs) (laughs) when you are still a teenage boy (laughs) um when you're a boy man yeah um, when you are a teenage Mm. boy though and the most beautiful girl in the school is definitely not ever going to give you the time of day and is going out with some guy who's five years older and has a car. Yeah. You know, it's hard to not make those assumptions that that's the way the world works. I think what I should have stressed is I really understand that frustration in its beginning, Mm. that the frustration of it and the unfairness of the world. In a way, there's a reversal, actually. I think being a boy at school where the girls that you'd like to kiss are going with older guys with cars is then reversed when you're a slightly older woman. And the, the guys you like are going for much younger women right. <laughs> and picking them up with their cars. There is um, a dissonance, isn't there? I think the thing that I feel so sad about, something I've only recently become interested in, in the last couple of years, is actually um, how... Ooh, oh, someone ringing. Um, That's a Salinger estate. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sorry, this is the Salinger estate. You don't have permission for this podcast. Also, it's very unfocused. <laughs> You're just drifting randomly through. Don't you have any questions like to give it some structure? Have you heard In Our Time with Melvin Bragg? That's more the approach that perhaps you should be taking. I think it's yeah. Richard's agent go, you did yes. say you were a Nazi over and over again. Yeah. <laughs> Can you just stress? Yeah, yeah, fine. Can you develop that? <laughs> but you were a little bit worried about the funny riff you went on about mm. the Nazis. Yeah. Um, for a while... You were sort of modelling yourself on Holden Caulfield, I think I remember you telling me. Well, I I got a hat. I did get a hat Mm. and I got the baseball glove. You got the hunting cap. Yes. I couldn't find a red army hat um, or hunting cap, so I got a a terrible um, army surplus cap. And then I I got a baseball glove, which took forever. I asked for it for my birthday. No one played baseball. Mm. I was quite isolated. What's the significance of the baseball glove in the book? His, he writes on it. It was his brother. Yes, his brother Ali writes on the baseball glove poems, mm-hmm. which he reads when there's nothing to do in the outfield, and he writes them in green ink. And so I had the baseball glove. Did I you wrote write po- poems on there. Of course. Yeah. <laughs> I, I saw it through. Original poetry? Oh, no. No, it was a bit of Shelley and uh, Some maybe... Some Pam Ayres on the back. A bit of Pam Ayres, <laughs> and then just, you know, limericks. <laughs> There was a young girl for... Yeah, Yeah. no, I think it was... Oh, yeah, oh, good grief. But it was... (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I really went for it. Yeah. But no, it was really private. It wasn't like I was going, hey, everyone, look at my catcher in the rye glove. Mm. Uh 
it was just i don't know i really got into did you it. have any pals who are into it that you could uh i just stopped with? you after pals um <laughs> no the answer to that is no <laughs> No one who gets a catcher in the right glove and writes on it in green yeah, ink is drowning not, in friends. I had some. The people who would like this book, they would lo- love it because it resonates with isolation, not because everyone in my gang feels exactly like this. Yeah, like, me and yeah. the guys, whenever yeah. we went down the Waffle House. Yeah. We were, <laughs> Dude, let's get together and talk about catcher in the right again tonight. Yeah, Ride yeah, party. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> let's do shots and talk about Holden. So obviously this is a book that is still a set text for many yes. students. I wonder, is it? Yeah, I think it is. Um, well, do you know what? I'm completely unqualified. I'm going to say, like I'm going to stick my neck out and say that this is a book that is still a set text. I think it's still a GCSE it's text well. for many yeah. students. I mean, that's partly because it hasn't dated all that badly. There's not too many overtly sexist, racist, otherwise offensive bits of. Um, I mean, you know, there's stuff that skirts around those areas. Yes, but, but Holden yeah. himself mm, seems like broadly speaking a good I, guy. I think also topic wise for such a perfect book my sister's an English teacher and that's the kind of book she's looking for as an English teacher you're teaching people about books but you also ideally they're all very romantic you want to teach them about the world and I think because it circles around those things exactly as you said and also you want a student to have a personal attachment when they do write their coursework and things but I think that the unfortunate irony is that everyone hates the books they're made to read at school. That's the thing. I mean, it was really such a shame for me because now I'm thinking, gosh, I wish my teenage son would read it because I think he'd right. get so much out of it. But there's just mm. no way he's not going to Another have parent, it. a mother, told me that if she wants her daughters to read something, says it's too grown up for them and they mustn't. Yeah, the top shelf <laughs> school of parenting. So just says, um, when you're a bit older... This you might, but I think at the moment too young, very adult themes in there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, the thing is, it, it is a gamble because with the best will in the world, you might just not like it. I found it very depressing when I read it the first time round. And I think the reason was that my parents were insulating me as much as they could from mm. the adult world, trying oh, really? to preserve yes. my bubble of innocence. Yeah. And here was a book that was trampling all over that, that was all about someone making the transition and being mm. frightened at the prospect of joining the phoniness and the ludicrousness and, and the you know, nonsensical nature of the adult world. And I was rejecting it myself. I was just thinking, no, this seems awful. Depressing hotel room on his own with a prostitute and he's smoking and he's sad all the time yeah. and he's in the park and he's freezing and none of his relationships work out. And what are his parents even doing? Why aren't they there looking after him? And it was all just too much. Well, I guess that's it, actually. It's a completely structureless life. He leaves all of the structure, doesn't have a definition of what he's going into. You see, I didn't find the fact that what was in it could potentially be seen as depressing or that Mm. he often talks about being depressed i always find it really depressing if something seems to me to be rubbish or that no one cared in the making of this or the or writing it and so i found incredibly undepressing that it was so good i find something that has an uplifting ending which i don't like incredibly depressing for some reason i always found the end of star wars the most depressing thing ever of the first movie yeah that they do all of this stuff and then at this ridiculous ceremony they just suddenly look so neat like they can't be themselves that it just felt awful but like no who wants to film this scene this is like you have to give it this ending whereas you know empire strikes back felt great because it wasn't a happy ending and i found myself far less depressed at the end of that than at the end of star wars well that seems to me yes. on a, here's a bit of mickey mouse psychology yeah. for you sure 
you were not protected in the same way that I was. And so you were willing to embrace the fact that actually the the big secret about life is that there isn't a big happy ending. Mm. It's all pretty messy, actually. And so you were okay embracing drama that reflected that in some way. And I just wasn't able to yeah. deal with well, it. I was yes. very happy with the ceremony at the end but of all Star the, Wars. Right. They're getting a met. This is, they're <laughs> smiling at each other. Look at R2. He's delighted. I didn't yeah, believe it for a happy. second. <laughs> they were plastered on smiles. You could Leia tell Harrison so Ford was bored out of his head. Oh, the ceremony. It's very formal ceremony. But later on, they're going to just relax in the cantina and have a laugh about it all. This is the beginning of a wonderful friendship that I can't wait to see unfolding. Oh, gosh. And then, by stark contrast, at the end of Empire Strikes Back, I was like, what the shit is going... Where's Han? He's just been encased in carbonite, and they're finishing the film like that? Luke's just had his hand chopped off for crying out loud. Yes, the artificial replacement seems to be working well. Those rods are really shuffling around smoothly in in his wrist there. But this is just a nightmare. So it's totally different. And I think it was just the product of me... Not being emotionally yes. yeah. ready to, to deal with the adult world, yeah. to deal with the reality of, of life after you're a child. It's heartbreaking. And the thing I was talking about before about being, I think, the kind of little control freak that Holden is in some ways, is that scene where he hooks up with um, his old girlfriend. Yes. What's her name? Old Sally Hayes. Sally Hayes. Sally. And he's just, he's kind of bottoming out. Yeah. feeling sorry for himself, almost run out of money. He calls Sally Hayes. He thinks, oh, she'll, mm. she she'll likes me. me. She'll turn up. Yeah. He knows. He sort of abuses her mm. affection for him. And she turns up. And then he doesn't really have any real interest in what she has to contribute. Mm. All he wants to do is dump on her this fantasy of them running off and yes. starting a new life somewhere. Yeah. And then when she completely reasonably raises practical objections to the plan, Mm. he gets all bent out of shape and says, screw you, you don't understand. Yeah, all of his failure with women is because they're not real people to him yet. They're just their names, they're their face, and they're his kind of fantasy, and then they just disappoint him. Everything they say is phony or boring or wrong, and so they're not real. Yeah, but it doesn't feel sort of unredeemable, I suppose, because, well, I guess there are two things that feel, excuse him. It's a bit like in The Graduate, you mm. just go, this behaviour is not acceptable in someone older. But his youth is such a lens through it that, you know, he's trying to be far too adult and it's impossible for him to do that. But his brother died when he was 13. Yes. And it doesn't feel like anyone is taking that into account. It doesn't feel that anyone around him apart from Phoebe knows we never sort of see him talk directly to his parents there's no it feels like they sent him to a psychiatrist for a bit so he's incredibly wounded and vulnerable yeah because he has a big meltdown after the brother dies yeah and he smashes all these windows in the garage and gashes his hands yeah and I suppose I feel it's important that that's a younger brother that you'd feel somehow responsible for Someone younger than you dying, it just feels against the laws of nature. But it does also feel there's such an absence of sibling rivalry in Salinger that I find quite interesting in that he didn't have any brothers. And I just can't imagine 
everyone I know with brothers, they have a lot of sibling rivalry, whereas it feels that the brothers in Salinger are kind of earlier, more perfect incarnations of himself, pre-being sullied by the world. So he can love Ali because he's small and red-haired rather than tall and sort of manly and preternaturally aged or or something like him. Or even like just bullying him or all of those things that happen. Mm -hmm. You're horrible to your siblings, really horrible. Whereas he never seemed, these characters never seem to have done that to one another. Uh, It makes you incredibly vulnerable trying to connect to someone. And especially if you feel completely disinterred and uh, uh, shattered, the risk of showing what a mess you are to people, Mm. especially in that post war pull your socks up he's about to go to military academy it's so terrifying that the threat and um, reality of rejection of meeting a world that doesn't understand you that just thinks you're strange is completely paralyzing i'd say so that's the thing that i felt reading it completely connected to that this is someone who is completely right emotionally he's completely honest in a certain way as well as obfuscating certain things but the things that he's obfuscating somehow feel less important than the truth is excavating I feel to me and that's why I feel you root for him in all of these situations where you go why are you why are you even agreeing to pay this sex why are you there you're so flailing and no one's helping you all people are doing is saying what's wrong with you Mm -hmm. effectively really and and this is in the 40s 50s in America, I mean, I'm sure it was the same in the mm. UK, when people were not discussing their feelings. No, absolutely. Well, I think that's what that book does so incredibly, is there are situations where you see both people's perspectives. So you absolutely, mm. you're right, Holden Caulfield makes complete sense and you have sympathy for him, everything, A to yeah. B, the knock-on effect. And so the example I would give is like, so the bar where there's these three women who mm. can drink alcohol and are allowing him to buy their drinks... And so it's a horrible situation because you absolutely understand his frustration. They're not being particularly nice to him. He dances with them and it's kind of okay. One of them's quite a good dancer, but they're more interested in famous people. But it's so deftly done that you also understand their perspective is they're just having a drink with each other. And this kid is annoying them, sitting there. Oh, one by one, of course, we'll go and have a dance with you. Kind of out of like begrudgingness, he has bought us these drinks. But of course they don't like him. There's no yeah, reason they've got they nothing would do. in common, exactly. No. And, and he's, he's sat himself down with them in a bar pretending, this pretense of being an adult and drinking his Coca-Colas. Mm. And I think that's what's so incredible is everyone seems very reasonable. Yeah. Like, yeah. He doesn't sell anyone out no. as a writer. You know, he argues for everyone and everyone has their own voice really distinctively. And yeah, as you say, it's such a sleight of hand because it's first-person narration I mean, it's such a miracle of the eliding from one to the other, whereby this reported speech, which he's giving you, represents the other person in a way that shows him up. It's enough information for you to always... And it is incredible writing. Um, Freud had this thing about the subconscious and how the human brain gets pleasure when it has to do a jump on its own. He wrote about this with jokes. People don't want to be told it. They want to have to work it out for themselves from that information and they get a real satisfaction. And Mm. that's what I think is so incredible about this book is that even like, yeah, with the, the grief... That word is never used. There's no. some information, like you say, about the smashing up and the hands and the, the glove, and then the rest is omitted. So you, you inject it all yourself, imagining, empathising yeah. the realities of that life and that experience. Yeah, and, and at one point he talks fairly matter-of-factly about thinking about 
jumping out the mm. window and just ending it all. But not in a not in a sort of protracted self-pitying yes. way. No. And that, if you know he's on the precipice of, you know, at the end when he faints yes. and he just blacks yeah. out, you, each moment is so charged that they're kind of elevated from these small kind of cotidian little interactions into real tests of can I go on or not? Can I, can I even live here? I need to run away. Yeah, there's something about him that feels that he does care about people as, as well as having this almost, I don't know, kind of horndog thing of just always describing how good-looking people are, yeah. whether he wants to see them. Yeah. Now, there's also a, a disgust. At, is it Stradlesser? I can never know how to say it. Mm. Yeah, Stradlater. Stradlater. Oh, yeah. That's just how it's spelled. The fact that he just doesn't care about yeah. anyone. He's yes. just a machine. Yeah. He's just a kind of seduction machine. Part of him slightly envies that ease, but you feel he does want to connect to yeah, people. of course. I think that Stradlater figure represents at all stages in your life there are other people where it just life seems to be easy yeah that's yeah. right and a stradlater and it's obviously things that are important to holdfield at that point but at every point in your life there are just people you go you just get up and you live it and then you go to bed and it's there's none of yeah. this yeah. it's not um, neurotic yeah i like your contraction of the name there holdfield holdfield <laughs> i like to call it holdfield to save time yeah <laughs> <laughs> i've just been shopping at holdfield <laughs> They do a lot of grains and uh, pulses. Oh, don't you find it quite depressing at Whole Foods? No, I like it. I, I always think about killing salad. myself when I first go in. Yeah. I don't know. It just seems a very lonely place. No one really connects there. It's full of phonies. There's a jazz floor. There's a jazz floor with a whiz round with a cola. It's true, isn't it? But those are presumably, they're the phonies, aren't they? Is that a phony? Well, the phony is, is a, a phony? catch-all term because it, because it yeah. means it just means you you agitate me. I don't like you. I'm jealous of you. Right. I, sometimes it is I see through you, but I think it's more often that agitation. I think is the right word. Something about it makes Holden feel uncomfortable, and thus yeah. you must be a phony. That's it's evidential that way. Because it would be nice to be a phony, don't you think? Like it would be nice to be untroubled by a lot of the things that Holden is yes. troubled by. Yeah. And that I think he knows that as well, because everyone must think that at some stage. Like do you really feel that though? Sometimes you do, don't you? Like if you're if you're really in a pickle and yeah. and you're just overthinking everything so much in minute detail, relationships, tiny minutiae. I wonder if that's a cake and eat it one. I think so you know, when people just go, I'd love to be religious. I'd love it. Absolutely yeah. love it. Just, um, <laughs> yeah, just easy, love to have it? that comfort. <laughs> yeah. well, and you go, no, 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 no. It? It's not like what, it's really I, hard yeah. to be religious. I think, <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think yeah. the key to the word phony and actually the phase of his life that Holden is in is that when you're a teenager, you don't realise that absolutely everyone is exactly like you. You assume that other people are two-dimensional right. and, and it is easier. And then I think the really adult thing that happens is you realise, oh, everyone is having their own version of this. And I think that's when you have proper a- adult empathy. Yes. You realise I'm not special, I'm not alone. I mean, you can be isolated in what you're going through, but you realise everyone has the same pain and joy and the whole spectrum of emotion. Whereas I think when you're a teenager, you can't help but think it's just you. Everyone thinks they feel more than other people. Right. And if something is not explained to you in terms that you can immediately understand, you just dismiss it. But I feel he says that at the end when he says, you know, don't start thinking about people because then you'll miss them. He actually, I think he does see that in everyone. And I think that is why life's really painful for him. There's the Schopenhauer thing, Thou Art That, which is you seeing yourself in other people. And so, and you know, why did people try and 
lift the car off someone yeah. in the road and they don't yes. know this person or risk yeah. their life is the immediate recognition that they're the same as you I guess like yeah. the catcher in the right thing he's just localizing it to children because he I think partly feels well how could I save an adult I'm not an adult so mm. he can save people like him so explain the catcher in the right thing well he, what is the title about well in the book he's speaking to phoebe and phoebe's saying you don't like anything his mm. sister you don't want to do anything you think everything's terrible what do you want to do and he says he talks about the poem is it robert burns poem which he mishears because yes. a child early was singing it yeah. if a body catcher mm. someone if a body right. met a body yeah and body met the a right. body, yeah. yeah but and the meta body is the right yes. one yeah but he hears this kids say catch yes, a body right. yeah. and so he says oh I'd like to be that's what I'd like to be yes. I'd like to be someone who just lets the kids play in this big field of rye and there are loads of children there and then if anyone gets too near the edge I'll just catch them and save them because there's a cliff edge yeah which I guess is so connected to Ali and saving his brother and also saving himself and it seems that the thing that really redeems him is the idea that oh now phoebe's going to drop out because at the end phoebe comes with her suitcase and says i'm going to run away with you and we'll go away and i think in that moment he goes no i don't want to infect you with this and i think that's one of the great redeeming things about him that he doesn't want his sister to get messed up like him and and have this reaction and so yeah, I, I feel the phoniness is to do with a kind of lack of truthfulness, which I guess is self-delusion, and everyone's self-deluded. I think that's the main condition of existing. Or there's an element of stoicism, isn't there, about the condition of adulthood and the loss of innocence? You have the option to go around bleating about it the whole time, if you want, to be saying to everyone, why aren't you freaking out? Yeah. We're all going to die. Yeah. It's horrible out there. It's scary. Yeah. People are phony. We're not getting on. It's Why is there so much music? Or you have the option to try and make the best of it and to, yeah. to be stoical about it to a degree, to assume that other people are yeah. struggling with those. So if phony is not addressing the existential reality of being alive, I think the problem is that no one does that 24-7. So you might be at one moment talking about something very real, yeah. but the next minute Holden might hear you talking about sandwich filling and go, right, oh, okay. these phonies at cocktail parties talking about a sandwich filling. Maybe that's the thing about being a teenager because everything yeah. is so raw yeah. that you think it, no, it has to be that constantly. So we work this out. That's right. And then this is next bit we go, we're not going to work it out. It's a big mystery. But you see, I feel he could. You could be really sincere talking about sandwich fillings, and it's more just. Yeah. And How he would talk. He about would it. like that. He he just wouldn't like someone trying to make themselves sound great oh, about great. sandwich fillings. Yeah. Or go, like his if, new sandwich filling. Yeah. Like if someone yeah. goes, I just really love cheese. He wouldn't think that. I think it's the idea yes. of trying to impress people. Okay. Right. Doing or, it as a pose. Or, or oh, coming yeah. from okay. fear. It's really difficult to not be self-deluded. It's just impossible. I mean, you see it in certain people. Often when people are older and they've got less to lose or there's a certain... If you know you're going to die in a week, I think your self-delusion probably drops right. in a certain way. You less, worry less about being well, uh, eviscerated on you, social you don't, media. You don't you worry about... <laughs> yeah, you don't just go, oh, look at this tweet yeah. that someone sent about me. Um, I guess it's trying to get to what is meaningful, which I suppose for someone coming out of a, a situation where you see the death camps first hand and just see something so oh, terrible and hidden course, yeah. that why wouldn't you be obsessed with really 
the necessity for people to realize how messed up they are that people really need to engage with that and it being urgent and not just a kind of affectation that it's like life and death then Selinger's worst nightmare kind of comes true which is that the book is a runaway sensation right within a few years it's the biggest book in the world everyone loves it across the world it's gone crazy it's never been out of print since it was published it supposedly sells like a quarter of a million copies a year and continues to do so just soon after it was published all sorts of people wanted to by the film right and it's never been made yeah. into a film has no, it no and, he, and they can't it can't be yeah why is yeah. that he's stipulated against it in his will right billy wilder jerry lewis Kazan, jerry lewis what the hell would he have done? did he, he want to play yeah, holden, holden caulfield can you imagine jerry lewis no and uh leonardo dicaprio oh, in wow. more recent times wanted to play that part andrew ray and winston ray winston would have been wonderful <laughs> Uh, David Walliams, I think, would, would, have, yep. would have made a superb yep. Holden Caulfield. Really good. Salinger have said the only person who could play it was him. That was supposedly yeah. the thing. Right. That's the thing is it seems like he's so inextricably connected to it and yeah. couldn't separate it. Yeah. And yeah. wouldn't want... It's difficult. And any book to a film is very, very difficult. But you're essentially you're widening out the amount of creatives who have a take on it. And if it's that inherently personal and specific, yeah. you can't allow that without ruining it. Yes, and he was burnt by... There was an adaptation made of one of his books, which he mm. hated. What was that one? Was it what Franny? Was it? I mean, the only one I've read, I think, is It Franny was one of his know. stories. Was it called My oh, yes. Foolish Heart? He had a real uh, They changed the title that. to Blue, Blue Melody. Melody. And he freaked out. He went yes. fucking furious. And never spoke to the, his friend, who was, oh, really? who was meant to be safeguarding yes. that the copy oh. was perfect. But he didn't have control over the title. And he never spoke to that person wow. again. He's a control freak. Yeah. So. Wow. Um, but still, the the, the phenomenon yeah. just gets away from him yeah. and immediately turns into this kind of thing where people are fascinated by him yes. because it seems to be so clearly autobiographical. Yeah. They start wanting to find out about him and his uh, relationships and his personal life. He gets fed up and moves out to the country to Cornish in New Hampshire, this little town where he lived until his death in 2010, aged 91, yeah. and defended his privacy oh, yes. with a shotgun. Sometimes yeah. he would appear at the door when, yeah. when nutters turned up, which yes. they would do like regularly. Kind of making a pilgrimage to him. Yeah. So this, this is the thing that's interesting. At university, I did an English degree, and the first term, one of the things we studied alongside postmodernism was death of the author. We were told at the beginning of university, essentially... Don't get carried away about what is biographically true or where it yeah. comes from. You take a piece of work as a piece of work and you'll be much better at analysing it. And I went to a university that specialised in cultural materialism. And so you, the time that a piece was written is very, very relevant. But whether the author did go to that school or was gay isn't. Mm-hmm. And so... And what do you feel about that? Well, the thing is, it's intoxicating. The minute you say, oh the war or young girlfriends of course I want to know more because you want right. to analyse them like a therapist yeah. and go now and that must, must be so frustrating don't, yeah. don't try and make meaning of a person via something that was also of a moment but there's yeah. something about it particularly there's a line in it when he says if I really like a book I just want to ring up the author and just mm. talk to him and he talks about maybe wanting to call up Isaac Dinnison but not Somerset Maugham and <laughs> um 
there is something if you really connect to something i don't know if you have this if i really like something i just want to immediately get everything yeah mm. which is a terrible um i think just urge of just possession as well and you're an loads of bad things everyone knows yeah. a ter- terrible person terrible person <laughs> but i'll just go okay now i've got to get everything yeah. um so i really like mike nichols i have to read everything he's ever said watch every film and i don't know that i necessarily want to read biographies but i somehow want the everything they've done and it doesn't matter if something's not so good i just have to i don't know you just mm. feel Completed. so connected to them sure yeah, yeah, it's tempting to sort of write it off that urge to get behind the scenes as immaturity, I suppose. And I only sure. say that because it's something that I'm definitely guilty of and always have been, of being quite literal minded and sort of wanting to know what stuff means. And now in the Internet age, you can do that very easily. You just type yeah. in, what does Catcher yeah. in the Rye mean? Yeah. And then you get brrr, well, actually, I a love whole that list with the of childish stuff. Gambino, This is America video. Oh, right. That was such an amazing thing to have an Internet resource to go. I know that there's all this symbolism here that I'm not qualified to read. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the fact that then you can some other people will show you this is that this is that. That's a nod yeah. to this. But those are just sort of specific details that are hidden in the background of the thing. It doesn't necessarily yeah. tell you what it means. And of course, ultimately, those are things that you need to decide for yourself. But it's a language where suddenly you've got levels of meaning. So if I was to watch an opera, yeah. which is in Italian and I've never seen an yeah. opera, any meaning I'll get out of it will be arbitrary. Right. <laughs> yeah. Whereas I loved that song so much in the video. And then the more I understood, the more I loved the levels and the intelligence and... So sometimes it's wonderful having things over. Yeah, I mean, to I you. do like. I, I'm I'm someone who watches uh, kind of documentaries about bands that I like. Yeah, I like seeing how this and that song came together. Yeah. But then I'll talk to other people, especially musicians, who just think that that is the saddest thing in the world. <laughs> and why would you want to do that? Yeah. Because if any medium mm. really can stand on its own, then it's music. Mm. And that's all you need. You've got the song. Yeah. Why would you want to find out about what they were doing in the studio yeah. and how the, who he was going out with at the time yeah. and all this kind of crap? I'm like, I, yeah, I yeah. love all that stuff. Love it. So to bring it back to Salinger, though, he is then in this position with people just being absolutely fascinated by the details of his personal life. And then to actually have not one but three people commit murder in the name of or at least partly well I guess that's it he became incredibly famous and so then had all of the terrible things that happen if you're famous and yeah embraced by the phone also so many people read that book I mean it sold so many that it's almost it's bound to be enjoyed by a couple of well look nut buckets yeah as in if you're a serial killer and you're looking for a book to read (laughs) It's likely that's one of the ones. Yes. Enjoyed this? Yeah. Try this. Yeah. yeah. And your Amazon recommends. Yeah. <laughs> like Guns and Ammo, you may also like. But it's so good. That's the thing about mm. Catherine Wright. You know, it's just so... I didn't want to find out anything about the author yeah. when I read Catherine Wright. I just thought I want to read everything he's done, as in mm. someone capable of this magic. You just would follow anything they wrote again, because it's just so... Rare. I haven't read his other books. What, oh, what's and your the, favourite of the others? I really like uh, Franny. Mm. Franny and Zoe. Yeah, the Zoe's longer um, and it's more to do with the brother, the two, yeah, the Glass family, there's Franny and Zoe who are not the youngest, but oh, maybe they are the youngest. 
Um, but Franny's the younger one, and Zooey's the slightly older brother. And Zooey is happens just after the end of the Franny story, and that's really beautiful. And I mean, all of it's good. Nine stories, Franny and Zooey, which is essentially two long short stories, not quite novellas. And then Seymour and Introduction, which was the last one, last published in book form one, which is twinned with Raise High, the Roof Beam Carpenters. I think they're all incredible. Have you read any of those, Sarah? I've read um, Franny and Zoe, but I think I might go and read some of the short... I'm very lazy with short stories, because actually I go, well, how good can they be? And then often it's very, very good, is the answer. I'd say these, yeah. Someone really had to twist my arm to read Raymond Carver. Oh, right, yeah, (laughs) Yeah, they're pretty great. Pretty great. Have you read uh, No Comebacks by Geoffrey Archie? (laughs) Quite a few twists. (laughs) Pretty good. Blow your fucking mind in that one. Is that that a short one, is it? I've read, I've read some Archer. There's some, is he good? What, I, I used to work He's in, a solid workman. I used yeah, to work in a, a hotel for older people. It's called Warner Holidays. And there's a book box. And I couldn't afford any books at the time. And so I only read what they left in the book box. So I read a lot of football managers' autobiographies. and Dean Koontz. <laughs> some Dean Koontz and yep. um, some Geoffrey Archer. He's got some page turners. Yeah. Yeah. There is an art to writing... Yes. Um, Suspenseful. A book. Yeah. <laughs> writing books. Oh, come yeah. on. There's no art to it. It's just this and this and this How and this and this. How many have you written now, Richard? Oh, I wouldn't say what I've written in books. Oh, I see. Um, but I, th- th- two things have been published. Mm. And there's another one that's about to yeah. Uh, yeah. drop. But the, yeah. How many yeah. have you right, written? Drop. I'm just about to finish my second book. Oh. It's taken me ages. Is it? Is it? Um, Not as long as... Salinger. What kind of thing is it? I'm writing about men, but uh, no, it's a massive topic, but this is why I catch you in the rye reading it now, having done the research I've been doing for three years and just being so fascinated about um, evolutionary pressures on men. So looking particularly at kind of social status and sexual selection. But what's very interesting in kind of current times, I just think teenage boys are getting a huge amount of conflicting information about what is expected of them. And that's what Catcher in the Rye is about. It's about you're supposed to be very strong but not aggressive. You're supposed to be respected by people and like this effortlessness that other people just manage to do it. You can be the most popular, sporty, attractive guy in the school without trying to be it. Yes. And and just how difficult it is. Mm. I think it's a very difficult, actually, the male thing, the idea that you have to provide and protect. I think that in itself is a very odd position yeah people don't really think that too much anymore though do and they it's weird the program first dates makes such a song and dance about men paying for dinner in, oh, okay. in heterosexual okay. when i was researching for my book there's a huge amount of news stories about um men who wanted money back after dates have you ever read any of these no way okay, i'll send you some i think it's really interesting um that so, they felt they'd yeah, they'd so, been an outlay and they ought so, to and and often not a huge outlay so there's right. one in costa coffee and it was in every paper, Telegraph Times, Daily Mail, The Sun, the, Sun all, and the Guardian, all the papers. A woman had written a blog with screen grabs of the messages. She'd met up with a guy on an app. They went to Costa Coffee. Yes. He said, Do you want to come back to my house? I'm getting a Waitrose delivery. She said, no. And then he, the next day... Even though there was a Waitrose delivery. <laughs> no, and he said, I'll cook for you. I'm having a Waitrose delivery. And she said, I don't feel comfortable. Gosh, you can't please them, <laughs> messaged her to say well maybe we'll have dinner another time come on for dinner and she said i didn't really think there was a spark and he replied going fair enough can i have the 380 back 
And she um, said, I can give it to charity. And he said, I'll decide how I spend my money. And it, but it's really interesting in terms of the investments of dating because yes. there's this other thing. Um, but that was a story because he's an outlier. I mean, that's, he's that's... an outlier. But the comments underneath, there were lots of people saying, why are men expected to pay on dates? Okay. And if the expectation is an investment into a relationship... You know, my comedy wife, Joe Cornish, is, as I speak, promoting his film, The Kid Who Would Be King, and has done a lot of press. And people occasionally sort of uh, jokingly needle me with it on uh, social media. I look, Joe's got a film out. It's a proper film. What are you doing? Oh, my gosh. um, What are you doing, Adam? Well, (laughs) I'm doing a podcast about catching the rye that just sort of meanders all over the place. How dare you? They're going to type this up and put it in Sparks Notes. (laughs) (laughs) But um, one of the comments I got was, uh, what what, what is Adam Buxton doing anyway? He seems to be content just to live his life out in the country with his brackets rich, question mark, wife. I, wow. you know, yes. he's not doing it's anything to earn man. money because he's never been on TV that I can remember. So yeah. presumably he's just a kept man. And yeah. how humiliating to be living, you know, with, with his wife providing mm. all the money is like that. That would be the most humiliating thing yes. to not only be uh, inveterate and lazy and unsuccessful, but also to be paid exactly. for by a woman. Exactly. My dad was always ill when I was young. So my mum was always the person who bought everything yeah. i just didn't find it uh yes. strange yeah i'm more evolved is what i'm saying yeah well i think um, yeah so i and think better than other people my we, we've sorted everything us three my primary caregiver and my dad who didn't live with us was a jazz musician mm-hmm. yeah and, and who didn't have any of that macho status so i found it very surprising as an adult that anyone cares mm-hmm. or anyone thinks you should do anything just because of your gender right i'm very evolved as well I think we've pretty realised that yeah. um, <laughs> if Holden Caulfield were to like anyone, it'd be these three guys sitting right here. Yeah. I, yeah. I <laughs> right think, here. I think phony Club, had, not in it. Had, had he not... We call ourselves Phony Club, ironically. Yeah, exactly. Because so unphony. I think if... Holden gets such a bang out of us. <laughs> if we'd actually managed to do this in 2009 before he died, I think he wouldn't There'd have There'd be another 10 years. <laughs> when we did yeah. the pilgrimage. Yeah. yeah. I like the phony club. I'm also thinking of My Little Phony. Oh, My Little Phony's Please, nice. come on. <laughs> Don't throw that away. <laughs> Don't just toss that away like it's like a small thing. That's like a major discovery. That's really great. What's Adam Buxton doing with his life? <laughs> That's what. Wordplay. My Little Phony. Yeah. See yes. ya. Wait, this is an advert for Squarespace. Every time I visit your website, I see success. Yes, success. The way that you look at the world makes the world want to say yes. It looks very professional. I love browsing your videos and pics, and I don't want to stop. And I'd like to access your members area and spend in your shop. These are the kinds of comments people will say about your website if you build it with Squarespace. Just visit squarespace.com slash Buxton for a free trial. And when you're ready to launch, because you will want to launch, use the offer code BUXTON to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. 
So put the smile of success on your face with Squarespace. Yes. Continue. Meets a body. Meets a body. Welcome back, podcasts. That was Sarah Pascoe and Richard Iowadi. I'm very grateful to them for their time. That conversation was recorded in February of this year, 2019. And at the time, they were both busy writing those books, which will be out later this year. Sarah's book, Sex, Power and Money, is published at the end of August. And there's a link to the Waterstone site where you can pre-order it. Uh, the site says, it's a funny book with serious intent. Sex, Power and Money asks uncompromising questions about the sex industry, objectification and the erotic allure of immense wealth. And in so doing, Pasco offers a splenetic, incisive and frequently hilarious account of the modern condition. And actually, now that I think of it, it occurred to me that the thing I was talking about with Sarah at the end of that conversation, when I mentioned that person's comment about me having a rich wife, I perhaps took it the wrong way, and actually it wasn't intended to imply that having a rich wife would be humiliating. Maybe it was just innocent speculation, I don't know. As a matter of fact, I do have a rich wife. Rich in kindness, rich in love, and rich in omega-6. Uh, Richard's latest book is called Richard Iowade on Top. It's out at the beginning of September 2019. And the blurb reads thus. At last, the definitive book about perhaps the best cabin crew dramedy ever filmed. View from the Top, starring Gwyneth Paltrow. Iowade argues for the canonization of this brutal masterpiece, a film that celebrates capitalism in all its victimless glory, one we might imagine Donald Trump himself, half-watching on his private jet's gold-plated flat screen while his other puffy eye scans the cabin for fresh young prey. That sounds like a bit of blurb that Richard would have written himself. Uh, so, yeah, the, I haven't read the book, um, but... I do know that Richard has got this weird obsession with View from the Top, this film starring Gwyneth Paltrow. And so um, that clearly is the uh, central motif for his new book. And I will be talking to Richard about that book and other things in uh, September, September the 5th, I think it's a Thursday, at London's South Bank Centre. You will find a link to book tickets in the description of this podcast. This is going to be the last episode of the podcast that I put out for a little while. We'll be back in October, that's the plan, with more semi-regular episodes to take you up to Christmas. Rosie, come on, let's head back. Oh, this is a good fly past. That's the wrong way, though. Dog log, we're not going down that way. No, not that way either. We're going down that way. We're going back 
home. All right, it's time for a rest. We're on our summer break now. Sort of a summer break. I'm gonna, speaking of books, I've still got a lot to do on my stupid book. So I'm gonna carry on trying to do that. And then by the time I speak with you podcasts again, everything in the world will be fine. Trump, they will have got rid of Trump because I mean, send her back, send her back. He's not gonna survive that, is he? Of course he's not. No, it'll be fine, they'll get rid of him. I mean, it's beyond the pale. Him just standing there while the people at his rally are chanting, send her back. He's never gonna survive it. Trust me, they'll get rid of him probably in a couple of weeks. Probably our great new prime minister will sort it out for us. So everything's looking up. Political. Okay, thanks very much indeed to Annika Meissen for her edit work on this episode. Thanks to Seamus Murphy Mitchell for his production support. Hey, listen, I hope you get to enjoy some summer fun. If you miss the podcast while it's away, then explore the Adam Buxton app where you will find bonus episodes not available in the regular run and links to some stupid videos and I don't know, have a look around. The app is free. Okay, listen, tread carefully out there and um, bear in mind, I love you. Bye!